I'm Dave DeWitt. This is Tested from WUNC, a daily look at how North Carolina is dealing with COVID-19 and what we're learning about ourselves in the face of a global crisis. Today, school's out. Today, we've had to make another tough choice. Together with Superintendent of Public Instruction Mark Johnson and School Board Chairman Eric Davis, we've decided to continue remote learning for the rest of the school year for our K-12 public schools. A day after Governor Roy Cooper laid out a plan to reopen parts of society in stages, he ended the week with a reminder that the process will likely be painfully slow. He said the state has to go through a period of several weeks in which the number of new COVID-19 cases is falling, or at least stable. Then some businesses could reopen for a couple of weeks, and then further benchmarks would have to be reached, and restrictions would ease more, and so on. And that brings us back to plans for the next school year. There will be new measures in place to protect health when school buildings open again next year. This pandemic will be with us for some time. But I have every confidence that we will find a way to get schools open safely in the new school year. Cooper's school closure decision has at least the veneer of bipartisanship, as Republican State Superintendent Mark Johnson appeared with the governor. Republican leaders have pushed back against his stay-at-home plans, even as the two parties have worked in a more bipartisan fashion behind the scenes in legislative committees. Let's start there with Rose Hoban. She's the editor of North Carolina Health News, and she's been keeping a close eye on what's been happening in those committees. It's been kind of amazing, you know. Um, so, but but I but there has to be a caveat there. That bipartisanship has been mostly evident in the House of Representatives, where Speaker Tim Moore assembled a select committee on COVID Mm -hmm. and spun off five working groups from it. So those groups had bipartisan co-chairs. It was obvious there was a lot of work going on across the aisle. And it was all done in a very transparent manner. Like all those meetings were broadcast online with all of the technical glitches. (laughs) If I had a dollar for every time someone said, is your microphone on? (laughs) Um, And uh, but they were all broadcast online and um, they had requests for public input uh, on the legislative website where people could submit comments. So, you know, this was not completely unexpected coming out of the House, right? The House for the past few years has been quicker to embrace having audio broadcasts to their meetings, Mm -hmm. allowing the meeting rooms on their side of the building to be wired for broadcast. And the House has had its audio archives online for a number of years now. So there's not yet sound archives from committee meetings, but you can get sound from the floor debates. And as of April 14th, the House was broadcasting their committee meetings on YouTube. So, and when we come back next week, the House will be broadcasting their floor sessions on YouTube. Hmm. And there was money in last year's budget, you know, the one that didn't go anywhere. (laughs) Um, There was money in there for wiring the House side. Now, the Senate, you know, the Senate's a different story. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Let's say they're not as dedicated to this level of transparency. Um, They've been slower about wiring their committee rooms for sound, and there is still a handful of small committee rooms that aren't wired, which can be a problem if the room fills up, which has been known to happen. And last year, Senate leader Phil Berger said he'd consider adding video to his chamber, but that hasn't happened. And we haven't seen them. Like, they haven't met publicly. We got word from Speaker, uh, from uh, uh, Senate leader Phil Berger that the you know, his committee chairs had been working and 
they were all Republican committee chairs. And then uh, last week, I think it was, we had a press conference by Democrats with their suggestions, and they put forward suggestions that they thought would have bipartisan support. But, you know, we haven't seen much out of the Senate side other than press releases from Senator Berger's office. Hmm. So in whatever comes out of the, these, whatever has come out of these House committees, will get voted on by the full legislature next week. We'll see what the Senate come up with, comes up with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there are numerous efforts to help hospitals. Was there something in the House side that struck you as being especially helpful or creative or interesting? Well, uh, there were two bills that came out uh, from the healthcare working group. Um, one had appropriations, right, which is all the spending, and that that totaled just under a half billion with a B dollars in outright spending and about another $200 million plus to cover increased Medicaid expenditures. You know, that number's a little squishy because it in part depends on how many people look for help from Medicaid. And remember, the feds pay for 72 cents of every Medicaid dollar spent by North Carolina. So it's an eye-popping number. Right? They're, they're talking like at minimum $200 million, right? Mm-hmm. Um So the thing that pops out for me from the policy bill that came out of the House uh, Healthcare Working Group that was surprising was the establishment of a state strategic stockpile of medical equipment. Hmm. So now for decades, we've had a national stockpile of medical equipment for use in just this type of event. And that stockpile has been under-resourced. And there's been some really good reporting on how there were snafus on the procurement of breathing machines over the past three presidential administrations. And, you know, there's been the whole problem with personal protective equipment. And finally, that stockpile has now become highly politicized. So I think legislators decided they can't depend entirely on the federal government for this going forward. You know, I will say Roy Cooper is not the only governor who's complained about the way the federal government has handled the national strategic stockpile, Mm -hmm. nor is that criticism only coming from Democratic governors leveled at a Republican administration in Washington. Um, Like, Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, uh, uh, who is a Republican, has made comments to this effect, as has Mike DeWine, the right. governor of Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, so the rest of the money, you know, it makes sense. It's like money for free clinics, money for rural hospitals, money for this was another interesting thing, money for a new research fund to help with a state level response. And I think the House was strategic in channeling that money because it's more than $100 million, and they channeled it through a research group that was kind of the brainchild and sort of a pet project of Senate Leader Phil Berger. And I just need to say this, since we've talked about the House and Senate, you know, today. You know, I I asked my friend, the the late Mark Binker, who used to be a reporter at the legislature, Mm -hmm. during my first session that I was at at the legislature full-time, why there was so much sort of animus between the two chambers. And I was like... You know, this is 2012. And I was like, yeah, and they're both led by Republicans, right? Why are they fighting all the time? And Binker told me that when he was a new reporter at the legislature, he asked the same question of an old-time lobbyist and was told, son, and I'm imitating Binker here, son, the other party is the opposition. The other chamber is the enemy. <laughs> and you see that play out all the time. Yep. So let's talk meat processing plants. Um, a number Shall of years we? ago... Okay. <laughs> A number of years ago, I spent a day in the Smithfield Hog Processing, processing Plant in Tar Heel, the largest such facility in the world. Uh, among the many things I witnessed that I remember to this day, uh, workers there work really close proximity to, a, to each other, standing elbow to elbow, dozens of people on a line, dozens of lines, uh, all with very sharp knives, 
pretty minimal protective gear, at least back then. And that plant is now believed to be one of the two that has suffered a COVID-19 outbreak in the state. Although we aren't sure because the state won't reveal which plants had outbreaks. Why isn't that public information? It seems it seems pretty important that it would be. Well, we're not sure why this isn't public record. Um, Our reporter, Greg Barnes, who's been tracking the outbreaks in meat processing plants for us, has asked for the data. um, And all he's gotten back is the total number of positives in all of the meat packing plants in the the state, right? Mm -hmm. So he told me he asked the DHHS spokeswoman why she didn't provide all the information. And she said that was all she had. Then she referred Greg to their public records response people. So he made a formal request for records. You know, for what it's worth, I've been tracking this kind of data being provided by different states and about 10 counties here in North Carolina. Um, I have them all bookmarked. I check them every couple of days. You know, and what's being provided to the public is all over the map. So in Louisiana, for instance, they're showing how many cases they have by census tract, which is a pretty small area. Um, Here, I had a conversation with the DHHS information person about two weeks ago, and I was encouraging them to release data by zip code, which is a larger geographic area than a census tract. And it was a conversation a little bit like discussing how many angels could dance on the head of a pin, because we got into this whole thing about like how small a population base you need to have in order for a member of the public to you know figure out who the case was and all this stuff. You know, it's frustrating because like a a decade ago after the H1N1 flu pandemic, I was involved in an effort by national public health organizations to provide some guidance for revealing deaths during an epidemic. And the national organizations were so squirrely about trampling on privacy rights that they wouldn't even label our consensus document as guidelines because that would be too strong. Instead, it was labeled guidance. (laughs) And you know, aside from that document, which is now a decade old, and I'm always having to drag it out and show it to people, there's really no national guideline. So I think a lot of it's sort of cultural, like specific to the state and the state organization. Um, And some states are more sanguine about revealing data, um, but others are not so much. And I think we're going to start seeing um, some higher level efforts to get some of this information out of the state agency. Rose Hoban is the editor of North Carolina Health News. Hang tight. More in a moment. Tested is a production of WUNC North Carolina Public Radio. And this is a good time to say thank you to everyone who supports WUNC. Whether you're an individual donor or a business, we cannot say thank you enough for providing us with the resources and opportunity to serve the state of North Carolina with up-to-the-minute news and information. Everyone at WUNC is working around the clock to do just that at this unique and perilous moment in our history, and we couldn't manage without your help. So thank you. And if you're able, please go to wunc.org if you want to donate for the first time or perhaps increase your support. For more than two years, my oldest son has been actively searching for the right college. And like millions of other high school seniors across the country, the deadline to make a final choice is May 1st, one week from today. The last two months of the process has not, of course, gone according to plan. Normally, prospective students would be narrowing their lists, eliminating some, keeping others on, by taking late visits or tours or connecting with current college students and faculty. The upheaval is equally pronounced for the admissions officers on campus. 
They've canceled all their usual events and scrambled to set up Zoom calls and online hangouts and Q&As. For them, it's about the individual kids they bring in, but it's also about yield, the number of students they admitted who decide to enroll. And that's a huge unknown and vitally important as their campuses reel financially and otherwise from the pandemic. We reached out to admissions directors at colleges across North Carolina and asked them how things are different this year and what advice they would offer to kids like mine who are trying to decide what to do. We'll start with Eric McGuire at Wake Forest University. We've reached out to our admitted high school seniors to answer their questions and connect them to students, faculty, and staff across campus. If I were to offer advice to high school seniors, I would suggest to reflect on what drew you to a particular college or university in the first place. Don't hesitate to get in touch with admission offices and engage in conversation. This is Stephanie Whaley at East Carolina University. The advice that I would offer is to not worry. East Carolina University is going to work with you. We want high school seniors to know that if they have questions, we are here to answer them in a variety of formats from um, over the phone to text messages to social media. Hi, this is Steve Farmer from UNC Chapel Hill. The first thing we hope you'll remember is that we're, we're really sorry for what you're going through. You didn't ask to have your life upended in this way. We want dearly to connect with you now, whether by phone or by Zoom or by email. Uh, most important, please, please, please get in touch with us and please let us help. Hi, this is Jamia Tenney, Director of Undergraduate Admissions at North Carolina A&T State University. One thing that's true about the Aggie experience is that during tough times, we rally together, we communicate, and we make sure that everyone knows that we are here to support them. I think it is important to know that although these times are here, that these times will not last forever. And so it is important to still remain optimistic, remain wise in your decision-making, but know that your future is still very, very bright. Outside of the pandemic as well, when we get over to the other side, we'll be able to celebrate together and still go move forward to achieve your goals and become those future professionals that you would like to be. Thanks to Jamia Tinney at North Carolina A&T, Steve Farmer at UNC Chapel Hill, Stephanie Whaley at East Carolina, and Eric McGuire at Wake Forest for offering us their thoughts and advice. That's it for this episode of Tested. I'm Dave DeWitt. Will Michaels produces the podcast. Lindsay Foster Thomas is the executive producer. Brent Wolf is WUNC's news director. Thanks for listening. See you Monday.